You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah is where we're going to be landing these next four weeks, Jonah chapter 1. If you're not familiar with where Jonah is, you, uh, you can go through the, uh, to the book of Amos, and then you go to Amos and Obadiah, and then after Obadiah, you'll get to Jonah. Now, if that didn't help you, sometimes when you read the Old Testament prophets, uh, it kind of sounds like a, a Star Wars uh, group of characters, like you have uh, Amos, Obadiah, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jonah, Micah, and Chewbacca. Um, but this morning, we're in the book of Jonah. And so let's stand as read God's Word in Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amtiah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for, the evil, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great storm, a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So that the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You may be seated. I have a question for you this morning. How many of you are Christians who are running from God. It's amazing. It went just like that. All of us this morning are very probably familiar with the story of Jonah and the fish. Maybe you are new to church. Maybe you're new to this story, and you're going to really enjoy this. But a lot of people grew up hearing about the story of Jonah. Maybe those of you that were in Sunday school, you saw it on the flannel boards. Maybe you watched the VeggieTales version of it. It's a story that we often learn as kids. And one of the things that as we read this story, and really as we think of the secularization of this story, is that there there, there is a part as we read the narrative of Jonah that seduces us into thinking that this story is just about a great fish swallowing, swallowing up a rebellious prophet. Many secular people in our day ridicule the book of Jonah, and they call it fiction. They call it a a mythological story that maybe has some morals in it, but really isn't applicable to us today. But I want you to understand, if you believe and if you accept that God created the universe and that Jesus rose from the dead, you should have no issues with Jonah being swallowed by a fish. So the question is, well, what is this story all about? And and we've got a lot of content to cover this morning, so I'm going to be preaching rather quickly, so I hope that you can listen rather quickly, even though you've lost an hour of sleep, which I pray that will be abolished one day. Oh, Lord Jesus, let it be abolished, this thinking time change. But what is the story of Jonah about? Well, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah, it's not about a fish, and it's not even about a city named Nineveh. 
The book of Jonah is about God and his relentless pursuit of grace and mercy for rebels both inside and outside of the church. What we're going to find in this story is that our sin runs far, but God's grace runs farther. And so chapter one, what we learn is this, is that it teaches that Jonah, who is a man of God, who ran from God's call, but God graciously saved him from himself so that he could be used by God to reach his one. So let's walk through this text this morning. The first thing I want you to see is Jonah, the prophet. In verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We're introduced to two main characters in the story. You say, who are the two? Well, the Lord and Jonah. Those two characters are going to be found in every chapter of this book, both the Lord and Jonah. Now, this uh, phrase in the beginning is a very familiar passage, a very familiar phrase in the Old Testament prophets. Eighty-five times in the Old Testament, you will see a phrase, now the word of the Lord came. Here it is a typical formula to describe an Old Testament prophet. And this word that came to these prophets was like a sword in their spirits. It was like a burden on their shoulders, like a hammer breaking their hearts, like a fire raging within them. This word that came to the prophets was inescapable and unavoidable. Now, the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, whose name means dove. And he was the son of a man named Amittai. And Amittai and Jonah were given to us, their names are given, and the son of is given to us to show us that Jonah was a real person in real time. And so what we know of Jonah is that he was found, his, his time period was somewhere between 786 and 725 B.C., how do we know this is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, is we have Jonah being mentioned uh, as a prophet during the days of Jeroboam II. He served the northern kingdom of Israel before the Babylonian captivity, before the Assyrian captivity, and uh, he was there during the reign of Jeroboam II. He was from Galilee. He's from a town called Gath-Hefer. And so he was known as a very influential man in his day. He spoke a, a message of, of good news and, and even of prosperity. He was a very famous prophet. In 2 Kings chapter 14, the Bible calls Jonah God's servant, the prophet. And so he is God's servant, the prophet, meaning that he was specifically set aside by God with the unique purpose of speaking on behalf of God to the people. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, talks about the servants of God who were given the word of God. And here we understand here that Jonah heard the voice of God. He had great spiritual insight. He saw the purposes of the eternal God, and he was commissioned to bring God's word to God's people. Now, the days that Jonah lived were dark and difficult. King Jeroboam is known as being a very wicked king. He led the people of Israel into greater and greater sin. And because of that, God sent judgment throughout the period of Jeroboam. And, and Jeroboam and the people of Israel were under constant threat by their neighbors. And Jonah is sent into the northern kingdom, and he's contemporary with uh, prophets such as Amos, not to be uh, confused with famous Amos cookies, but Amos, the prophet, and Hosea. Both Hosea and Amos were called to be a prophet to call the nation of Israel to repentance. But what we understand about Jonah's messages early on is he actually prophesied of the northern kingdom's prosperity. So to a degree, he was a prosperity prophet. Now, what we know is that he wasn't a name and claim and blab it and grab it prosperity prophet because what he preached and what he proclaimed and what he prophesied actually came 
about. And so Jonah was very popular. Jonah was the guy that God called to speak this word. But now as we get to the text, God's word is in verse number two, I want you to arise and I want you to go. God now is giving a specific word for Jonah. And Jonah is to go to Nineveh. He's to go to a specific group. And this is, to my knowledge, in reading and studying God's word, is that this is the first time that God sends a prophet to a pagan Gentile nation that was not Israel. Now, we know that Elijah, uh, the prophet, and even Elisha went to uh, Gentile areas and, and, and was a prophet there. But this is a, the only place where, the first place in, in history where God sent his man into a place to prophesy to them. Now, later on, we'll, we'll read that Jeremiah and Isaiah were sent uh, to give messages to the other nations. But here, God specifically sends Jonah to the nations. Now, why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because God is ascending God. And, and for the nation of Israel, the missional strategy of God was more than just come and see. The missional strategy of God was go and tell. God sent the prophets in the Old Testament to proclaim his word. And today, God sends you and I to the nations and to our neighborhoods to proclaim his word. Now, just as Jonah was sent, so you and I are sent. And yet we are sent with greater privileges than Jonah had. We have a more sure word, the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This morning, here's what I want you to understand. You do not have to be some sort of spiritual marine to be a missionary. Every one of you and I that have Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and are filled with His Spirit are missionaries. The question is not if I am called. The question should be where and to whom I am called. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to quit your job tomorrow and surrender your life to full-time vocational ministry to be a missionary for God. That's not what I'm saying this morning. What I'm saying is that wherever you are, at your school, at your place of work, wherever your neighborhood is, you are called by God to be on mission. Now, that's a great place for an amen right there. Thomas Hale said this. He says, no one can say, since I'm not called to be a missionary, I do not have to evangelize my friends and neighbors. There is no difference in spiritual terms, not teams, between a missionary witnessing in his hometown and one witnessing in Kathmandu, Nepal. We are all called to go, even if it's only to the next room or the next block. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are either a missionary, or if you're not a Christian, you're the mission field. And if you're not a missionary, Spurgeon says, then you're an imposter. We are all called to go to the nations. You do not have to have a specialized spiritual gift to go. You do not have to have a PhD in theology to go. You don't have to have certain kinds of clothes to go. You don't have to have a bunch of education, a bunch of abilities to go. All you need is the Spirit of God and the Word of God sharing the gospel of God to people who need God. That's all you need. So we see Jonah the prophet. Now I want you to see Nineveh the people. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. To, for Jonah to hear this was a very shocking assignment. 
because Nineveh was the Assyrian capital of the world at that time. It is now modern-day Mosul, Iraq. I've, I've actually been just about four miles from Mosul myself personally, and, and even to this day, it's a ginormous city. It was a great city. It was a mega city. It was, in Jonah's day, it was about 60 miles around. It took about three plus days to walk around the city walls of Nineveh. The walls themselves were very thick. Scholars say that you could fit three chariots to, to show the width of the walls in the city of Nineveh. There was, in this time, in ancient days, city sizes, this was completely unspeakable, even unheard of, but there were over a million people that lived within the city walls of Nineveh. And, and a part of that we see at the end of the book where there's at least 120,000 children. It was a, as a town that was growing and flourishing, a town of great power, but it was also known to be a very evil city. It was known to have some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. They were so cruel that they boasted of their cruelty that small villages would commit mass suicide rather than falling into their hands. It's been said that of the Ninevites, that they would go into a city, they would conquer the city, they would take the leadership of that city and they would skin them alive. Then they would spread that skin over the city walls. They would then bury them in the sand with their hands and their heads sticking out. Then they would pull their tongues out of their mouths and drive a stake through their tongues so that they would languish in pain and die of thirst. And all that while it's going on, they would make them listen to Billy Ellish music over and over and over again until they died. Now, I made that last part up. But they were brutal. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go to them. I want you to go to them, and I want you to call out against that city. In God calling out, it was a warning. And in God giving a warning, see, a lot of us, we think warnings are bad things, that, you, that if you get a warning, that's a horrible thing. But a warning from God is actually God's mercy. Because the Word of God was meant to lead the people to repentance, the purpose of God giving a word was to show mercy. And God here in this moment is giving the cruelest people in the known world an opportunity for mercy. Now, Jonah is the one receiving this. And based on what we know about Jonah, that, that seems to make sense as we read through this book, is that Jonah was a pro-Israeli patriotic nationalist. And the Ninevites were the largest and greatest existential threat to Israel's security and prosperity. Nineveh was hated. Nineveh was feared. Nineveh was full of Gentiles. And God sends Jonah to preach to them. Of all the most unlikely candidates to be a missionary to the Ninevites, Jonah would be the poster boy of that. And so the question is this. How is Jonah going to respond? How is Jonah going to relate to people who are racially, religiously, and exponentially different from him? Is Jonah going to obey God and share the message of God to a people who seem the least deserving to hear it? And the question is, would Jonah obey God despite his own personal prejudice and his own personal fears? And the answer is no. No, which is now the third point, disobedience, the problem. The Bible says in verse 3, God says to Jonah, go, go, go. 
Jonah says to God, no, no, no. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, where is Tarshish? Many scholars believe that Tarshish is in southern Spain. This would be the farthest ends of the known world in a western direction. Jonah was told to go east. Jonah went west. Jonah was told to go 750 miles east. He gets a ticket to go 2,500 miles west. The man who spoke God's word is now the man running from God's word. He, in this moment, deliberately rebelled against God. Let me just tell you something. Rebellion is simply saying no to God. That's all rebellion is. Rebellion is simply saying no to God. And your past obedience is and can never be a substitute for present obedience. Some of you maybe have said, you know, I've served the Lord for years. I've done this for the Lord for years. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I've witnessed to other people, but now I don't feel like it. Past obedience is no substitute for present obedience. And listen, you're only as close in your walk and relationship and fellowship with God as your obedience is. So here Jonah flees to Tarshish. But notice what he says, or notice what it says in verse 3, that he rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's think about that for a moment, because in verse 10, he's going to repeat the same thing. I fled from the presence of God. Here's the thing about God. This is theology 101. God is omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere. Psalm 193, the, the psalmist David says, where can I go from, from you, God? I can't go to the highest of heaven or the lowest of hell, because that's where you are. Jonah couldn't run, and he knew he couldn't run from God. But what he wanted to run from was God's felt presence in his life. He wanted to be away from the place of obedience. He wanted to be away from the place of conviction. He wanted to be away from a place where he didn't have to feel guilty about it. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who know that they're living outside of the will of God, and so what they do is they avoid places where they'll ever feel guilty or bad about it. I know a lot of people that have said to me, you know what, I used to serve God, I used to live for God, but I don't attend church anymore, and if I came to church, lightning would strike me. Why is it people say that? Because when they go to church, they don't want to feel convicted. They don't, they don't want to feel His presence. And so what happens is, is you, you get, try to run away from the felt presence of God so that you, your soul becomes numb to it so you don't feel bad about your disobedience. Now, the question is, why did Jonah say no? And we've kind of addressed this for a moment, but I want to kind of talk it in about three ways. I think there's at least different reasons why Jonah would say no to God. One is he was scared. I mean, this assignment for Jonah would be like a Jewish rabbi being assigned to go to Berlin in 1941 and to stand on the streets of the city and call the Nazis to repent. That'd be a scary proposition scared. 
You know why a lot of us say no to God? Because we're scared. The second reason that he says no, I believe, is that he was racist and nationalistic. He hated the Gentiles. He hated the Ninevites. He hated ISIS. Because essentially, it's the same, almost same type of people groups. He did not want them to be successful. He did not want them to succeed. He did not want God to forgive them. He did not want God to show mercy on them. And you know, I think the third reason why he disobeyed is he had a wrong view of God, he had a wrong view of grace, and he had a wrong view of morality. Here's where Jonah was. Jonah wanted a God of his own making. You say, where do you get that? Bear with me with this. In Jonah's worldview... Here's what Jonah thought in his mind. And this is probably where a lot of you are, maybe, in the pews. His view of God is this. God smites and judges bad people. And he blesses good people. That's kind of where we're at today. It's it's kind of the karma Christianity of today. That if you do bad, then you're going to get bad. If you do good, God's going to give you good. And that was his view of God. In his mindset, bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. And so in Jonah's mind, he couldn't see why God would be merciful and gracious to these bad people. How is it? You know, he could see in his mind that God should be gracious and merciful to Israel, to good people. But how could God be good to murderous, torturous, God-hating, crazy, wicked sinners like the Ninevites? See, in Jonah's worldview, he didn't, he didn't understand. It didn't make theological or political sense for God to send him to Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 2, which we're going to walk through, he says, listen, God, I knew you were God of grace. I knew you were God of mercy. That's why I ran from, from this call. A, a few months ago, I was chatting with a guy just randomly at Starbucks, and we were just having a conversation. Eventually, I was able to share the gospel with him. And here's what he said when we were getting to the crux of it. He says, my biggest issue with Christianity is that you Christians believe that God can save anyone who simply repents and turns to him. And so then his question is, well, what about Hitler? What about Osama bin Laden? What about Stalin? What about people in ISIS who have committed such great atrocities? He says, he says to me, he says, people who've committed the worst atrocities in history, how can God forgive them? I could never believe in a God who can forgive people like that. What is he doing? He's putting God at his level. Because just because you can't forgive them doesn't mean God can't forgive them. See, the heart of Jonah's disobedience and the heart of our disobedience is that we don't trust God. See, Jonah mistrusted or distrusted God, and that problem in his heart was bigger than the mission that God had given him to go to Nineveh because his distrust of God was the source of his personal idolatry and his rebellion against God. Jonah, in his heart, doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God, and because of that, he ran. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan comes. And Satan tempts Adam and Eve at what level? At doubting the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. Has God really said this? 
oh, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because if you eat that fruit, you're going to be then on the level with him. God doesn't have your best interest in heart. And you know what? It seems awful arbitrary. Why would God tell you to do something or not do something? It doesn't seem to make sense. And so Satan's reasoning is this. Listen, if you can't come up with a good reason for God's commandment, then there isn't a good one. And so you could just do whatever you want to do. That's what Adam and Eve did. They didn't trust in God's uh, sovereignty. They didn't trust in his goodness. They didn't trust in his wisdom. They didn't trust in his justice. So they took matters into their own hands. The reason that you and I don't obey God is because we don't trust God with the consequences of our obedience. We don't trust him because we are afraid that our obedience may actually do something that we don't really want. For Jonah... He thought his obedience could, A, get him killed, or B, lead to the salvation of people that he hated. What is it in your life? See, the reason why we often disobey is because our will and God's will are in collision. And we say no. So the Bible says here that Jonah, in verse number three, went down. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Notice the Bible continues, he went down. Later on in verse 6, it's going to say, he went down. And when he went down to Joppa, which I've been to that city many times, guess what happened while he went to Joppa? Go back if you don't mind to that, back to the verse. What happened when he went to Joppa? He found a ship. Every time we try to run from God, we can easily find a ship for us to go to Tarshish. I want you to listen to me this morning, church. Some people believe in their minds that if there is a ship that is ready, then that is a sign that means they're doing the right thing. There are people that will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I was miserable in my marriage. I was miserable in my life. I was not happy. And I was watching television, and, and, and lo and behold, there was a television ad of a divorce lawyer. And it was as if God was speaking to me, there's your ship. There's your sign. Now listen, do not mistake ships that are ready for the will of God. Because Satan will always have a ship ready for you to sail away out of the will of God. Always. Some people see where Jonah, if you notice something about Jonah, Jonah goes down, he finds a ship, and he goes to sleep, and he has no problem sleeping. I've had people over the years say, Pastor, I believe this is God's will for my life because I have such great peace about it. Satan will give you peace. Satan can knock you out to give you sleep so that you can sleep being out of the will of God. And so Jonah, the Bible says, found the ship and he paid the fare. Obedience will cost you, but disobedience will cost you far more. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. 
And for Jonah, it almost destroyed his life and the life of others around him. Listen, sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. And so Jonah goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down to spiritual sleep. He drifted. You know, for a lot of us in the pews, and I'm gonna, we're going to be honest this morning. For a lot of us in the pews, our issue is not blatant disobedience. It's gradual, little by little, drift. Have you ever been out in the ocean swimming? And there you are, maybe you're with some other people, and you, when you go out to the water to swim, your tent is right there. And then you're out for a little while, and the next thing you know, your tent is there. And then you're out a little bit longer, and your tent is there. And the next, you're out a little while, and your tent is a half a mile down the road. (laughs) But you don't pay attention to it because you're out swimming, you're out having fun, and you don't see that you've drifted away. That's where a lot of, I think, people are in our church. I don't think a lot of us are just blatantly saying no to God with a fist in his face. I think a lot of us are drifting away. Little by little, we're not in the Word. Little by little, we're not spending time in prayer. Little by little, we're not sharing the gospel. Little by little, we're not being generous with others. Little by little, we're not serving. Little by little, we're letting anger and greed and lust control our hearts, and we look up and we see we are miles from God, and we never know it. So the Bible says, now I've got to go really quick, that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The the word hurled, which will be used twice in that text, is, is a word that is used often to describe throwing a weapon. See, the problem with running from God is that God is always already there where you're trying to go. Jonah thought he had outsmarted God, but Jonah was wrong. And God, in this episode, is lovingly going to show Jonah that he's wrong. And in your life, thank God, he's going to show you that you're wrong. Now, not every storm in your life is a result of sin. But some storms in your life are a result of sin. But in every storm, God is going to reveal something about your life that needs to get fixed. So God here sends a mighty tempest a mega storm. The storm was so bad that the ship, the Bible says, threatened to break up. It was as if the ship said, if something doesn't change, I'm about to go. And the sailors were afraid. These are seasoned men. As we read through the text, these were seasoned sailors. And the Bible says that they cried, each everyone out to their own God. Captain says, everyone cry out to your God. So people got their crystals out. They got their cards out. They got their rabbit's foots out. They were out there praying and crying out to God. And then even it gets to the point that the captain goes down into the ship and says, Jonah, hey, dude, come up here and cry out to your God. Now, the interesting thing, that word cry out is the same word in verse number two that God commanded Jonah to cry out to the nation, the people of Nineveh. These men on that boat knew that this storm was supernatural. They knew that this was from God. And look, they were in fear for their lives, and they literally were. 
in risk of their lives. And here's what you got to understand about disobedience. Your disobedience, my disobedience affects others around me. You never sin in private. Husbands, your sin affects your wife. I have so many husbands that say, Pastor, you know what? I look at porn every now and again. It's helping my marriage. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. <laughs> Looking at porn will never help your marriage. It will only hurt it. Parents say, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that for the things of God. We, we're gonna, we need to focus on this. Listen, your disobedience, parents, and not raising your children to love and fear God will have an effect on their lives. You as parents thinking, well, you know what? It's best for mommy and daddy to get a divorce, and there's no biblical grounds whatsoever, but we're just unhappy. And so, you know, we're just going to co-parent, and we're going to be divorced, but we're going to co-parent, and that's going to work out. Listen, it doesn't work out. Your disobedience has consequences. And when you disobey God, the consequences aren't always on you. The consequences could, are often and always with other people. The greatest gift I can give everyone who knows me and loves me is for me to be close with God. If you've ever been flying an airplane and, and they have this announcement in the beginning and they say, listen, in case we get in trouble and we lose cabin pressure, masks will descend from the ceiling. And what do they say to do? Put your mask on first before you put and help someone else with their mask. Why? Because if you ain't breathing, you can't help anybody else to breathe. Parents, if you aren't walking with God, you cannot help your children walk with God. Husbands, if you ain't walking with God, you can't help your wife walk with God. Wives, if you ain't walking with God, you can't help your husbands walk with God. Church, if you ain't walking with God, you ain't going to point anybody to walk with God. So the Bible says, now we got to get to the real good stuff. We didn't have time to read it. You can read it later on this afternoon. The sailors then cast lots. They want to know, well, who's the cause of this? We don't, so we don't know what they did. They drew straws. They rolled dice. We don't know. But guess who the problem was? Jonah. And the Bible says that Jonah revealed himself. He says, it's me. It's me, O Lord. <laughs> and he owns up to what he did. Go, go to verse 7. And they said to one another, let's cast lots that we may know whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come. What is your occupation? What do you come, where do you come from? What country are you from? And, uh, and of what people are you? So Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is it you've done? Now, the one thing I want you to notice is this, is that even though Jonah is the cause of this, these pagan men treat him with respect. Yes, they want to know, why did you do and why did you do it? And I'm sure in the back of their minds, they're saying, you're an idiot. But yet, what they do is they show this man of God respect. They ask him what they're supposed to do. And so, verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do with you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea 
Then the sea will quiet down for you, for, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. These were pagan men. And this guy was the man of God. Now, I want to, for some reason, this thought came to my mind. Is it, isn't it amazing how God can use unbelievers to correct believers? There's a watching world out there. Gandhi said he would have become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. How many people in your life are turned off from Christianity because they see the Christianity in you? Jonah here is a man who is a man of God, but was blinded by his own bigotry and foolishness and self-absorption. But isn't it ironic, don't you think, that the very ones that Jonah was running from, the people that were Gentiles and pagans, were the very ones on the boat treating him with respect. And so Jonah came to a place in his life where he stopped running. He owns, it, he owns up to it. He could, have made, he could have continued making excuses. He could have continued to deny, deny, deny. But here's the deal. If Jonah had continued to fight the storm, it would have killed him and everyone on board. But when he submitted to the storm, when he said, throw me into it, here's what he was saying. He was saying, I deserve to die. Kill me so that you can live. And what he does in this moment is he takes responsibility for his actions. Listen, church, listen, individual, listen, friend. If you fight against the storm, the storm will destroy you. But if you submit to the storm, the storm will save you. Because sometimes the very thing you think will kill you is what God is using to save you. You want to know why God sent that storm? Not to pay Jonah back. God sent that storm to bring Jonah back. See, deep within the terror of the storm was God's mercy at work drawing Jonah back, changing his heart. See, if we become slaves to money, We'll get some sort of bill that's going to seem astronomical to us that sometimes I wonder if isn't it from God to show us that money cannot be our God. Is it if we're addicted to people's approval that God will allow us to go through a season of humility to show us that what we need is his approval and no one's else, no one else's? If we are proud and we don't listen to anyone, God will sometimes allow us to fail so that we learn to listen. If we're involved in some sort of sexual sin or some sort of lust, he will expose us so that we can see that he is all that we need. If we are gossiping and lying rather than loving, he will put us in a situation where we are found out as liars and frauds so that we can come back to him. The Bible says that Jonah said, throw me in, but the sailors in verse 13, nevertheless... The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They, they tried to save Jonah, and so therefore they called out 
to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay, it not on, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. And so they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And as soon as his hind end hit the water, it stopped. Note something. These men actually become believers. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. These men converted to, to, to God. Now, isn't it amazing that God even uses a rebellious prophet to bring unbelievers to himself? See, the irony of this story, of this part of the story, is that Jonah fled because he didn't want to show God's truth and his mercy to wicked pagans, but he ended up doing it. And sometimes God will use you and your mistakes and your situations, and by his grace and his providence, somebody's going to get saved. But I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier doing it God's way. It is. Well, guess what happens? Jonah's hind end hits the water, and then Jaws comes. Snaps him up and eats him. But you know what we're going to learn this next week? Is that what seemed like a death sentence, a fish swallowing you whole, was actually God's way of saving him in the water. So let me end with this. Each year during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Jews, Jewish people, Orthodox Jews particularly, will read the book of Jonah in Israel. And after they read the book of Jonah, they'll read it, and in unison, they'll all respond, we are Jonah. See, this morning, if we're ever going to reach our one, we have to stop running from the one. See, I want you to remember that this story is not about Jonah or the city or even a big fish. It's about God and his relentless pursuit of rebels who need his mercy and grace. And in this moment... Who needed grace the most? Jonah. See, Jonah had to be shown in very vivid ways, which we're going to get even more to next week, what kind of sinner he truly was. See, in Jonah's mind, he saw the Ninevites as the worst kind of sinners in the world, those that were beyond the grace of God, those that didn't deserve the grace of God. But what he didn't realize is that he was as much in the need of God's grace as they were. Tim Keller says this on the text. He says, unless Jonah can see his own sin as someone living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. As soon as Jonah hits the water, the God whom Jonah didn't trust miraculously saves him. As soon as he submits to what seemed like a suicide death sentence, God saves him. You know, listen, church, God has a way of showing us our sins. One of the hardest prayers to pray is, God, show me my sin, because he will do it. And maybe some of you this morning, you are going through a storm. You're going through a difficult situation. It is not God paying you back for your sin. It is God bringing you back from your sins. How can we trust that that's true? We can trust that's true because of Jesus. Here's why. Jesus voluntarily jumped in the waves of God's wrath for us.
not because of his sin. He wasn't running from God, but because of our sins. Jesus said, throw me over. And what seemed to the world as a suicide mission was a mission of salvation. Because Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath for you and me, and he took it all. And when he was done, he stilled the waves of sin, death, hell, and the grave, which means that God's wrath is no longer on us, but we have now the love of God over us. So this morning, you may be going through the storm of disobedience. The best thing you can do is to stop running, stop fighting, but surrender. Surrender to the God who loves you enough to bring you here on March the 8th, the day of springing forward when you're half asleep, but your life has been hell all week so that he can bring you back to him. So this morning, I want to ask you two questions as we end. Number one, church family, who's your one? Who's that one person that God has put in your heart to share his love with? Who's your one? Don't be disobedient. Don't be disobedient. And the second question is, are you the one? Are you the one that God has been relentlessly pursuing to bring him to this place this morning so that you would give your life to him? What I want us to do is everyone bow your heads, close your eyes, we're going to end. And if you're here this morning and you need to get your heart right with God, maybe you're, there's areas in your life you need to confess. Maybe you need to say, God, I'm sorry for saying no, I'm going to say yes. God, I'm not going to fight you anymore, I'm going to surrender to you, God. If that's you this morning, you can do it in your pew, you can do it coming up front in the front. Maybe this morning you need to say, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do to reach that one. God, I know I can't save them, but I know you can save them. But maybe you're here this morning and you're the one. You're the one that God's calling to himself this morning. You're the one that needs Jesus as your Savior. You're the one that God has relentlessly been pursuing. And maybe this morning is your day in which you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.